Thank you for joining me today. My name is Megan Moritz, and today I'm talking to Dory about her book and an upcoming session she'll be doing for Isaka. But before we jump into all those details, Dory, it's nice to meet you. Hey, Megan. I'm so glad to be here. Burning question that I have that has nothing to do with your book or Isaka in general. Is it super cool when a very famous animated character has your name? Is that just like awesome? It, it's super cool. It increases my currency with like under 10 year olds so much. It's like all of a sudden I'm the most popular person in town at, at least at least for a year or two. And then, you know, it goes off the cliff again. But it, it was exciting while it lasted. Yeah. And I'm assuming your memory is better than, than the, the little fish. I try. I do. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to talk about your book, but before we do that, I thought we could take a moment to learn a little bit more just about you, um, if that's okay. So, and even if it's not, you can say, no, I don't want to answer this question. Can you give me an elevator pitch on the story of Dory? You, not the fish. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, Megan. So yeah, my, my super quick elevator pitch, I grew up in North Carolina. I decided to go off to college early. And I went after that, I was a philosophy major. I studied theology. I have a master's degree in theological studies. I worked on political campaigns. They all lost. And I eventually ended up starting 16 years ago, my own business doing marketing strategy and communications and really becoming fascinated with the question of how in a busy and noisy world, we can get our ideas heard. If you care about something, if you care about a project, if you care about an initiative, if you care about an idea, how do you actually get other people to care too? There's so much out there. How do you break through? And I really wanted to learn about that and study that. And so for the past you know, decade plus, that's really what I've been specializing in, uh, in helping individuals get their voices heard and helping organizations get their voice heard. So today uh, I've written four books. My most recent one is called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. I teach at Duke and Columbia, give talks for a lot of great organizations like ISACA, and I'm really excited to be here. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, I also have a copy of your book. Thank you for sending it to us. Appreciate it. So let's, let's talk about this. The Long Game, how to be a long-term thinker in a short-term world. So let's start with this for people who are newer in the field. What are some of the best strategies they can develop to help them establish credibility? Yeah, so this is always a, a big challenge, right? Because we often in our culture tend to default to experience equals credibility. You know, you see often in people's LinkedIn profiles, you know, well, as a blah, 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 for the past 25 years, I have done X, Y, and Z. And certainly experience and longevity is a form of credibility. That's great. But I think that for younger employees who might feel a little disheartened by that, like, oh, is anyone going to take me seriously? I haven't been here for 25 years. The good news is there are other forms of credibility that you can tap into. And so it's it's just being strategic about that. So just by way of example, one form of credibility is developing very deep niche expertise. It may not be possible for you to become the most experienced person at your company in general, but you certainly, especially if you're picking a kind of emerging topic or one 
that other people haven't really focused in on as much, you can certainly become an expert in a particular niche. You know, the person that everyone goes to for that, because they know that you've taken the courses, you've done the research, you've focused your volunteer time on something. That's an important form of credibility. Just educating yourself, you know, reading widely and being able to quote studies or to be familiar with the literature in the field uh, around this particular area can be very powerful. And there's the credibility of, you know, what I will call the kind of moral following that you cultivate. I don't mean moral like in the sense of theology, but I mean, we all know this intellectually. You don't actually have to be a leader in terms of your title at work to be an unofficial leader, to be the kind of person that people turn to because they respect you, they respect your character, they respect your opinion. And that is generated by being the kind of person that other people want to be, you know, treating other people kindly and with generosity. And especially, this is really critical, research from the, the Center for Talent Innovation has shown that the single biggest determinant of someone really being perceived by others as a leader, regardless of their title, is what they call gravitas, meaning, are you the kind of person that keeps a cool head in a crisis? Are you the person that when the chips are down, people instinctively turn to you? If you can cultivate that in yourself, it will attract others to you and your message. Awesome. I was smiling uh, over here while you were answering that. One of my very, very first events at ISACA, which was a very long time ago, uh, my boss at the time said, hey, can you run down the hall and get blah, blah, blah. And I tore out of the room. I mean, like in a full sprint, came back sweating, panting. And she's like, that's not exactly what I meant. That doesn't give this impression of like, I, everything's in control. You know what you're doing. It's that, oh my God, the room's on fire. We should all get out of here as quickly as possible. So starting to learn that, that gravitas, like, yes, I'm in control of the situation, regardless of the fact that I completely forgot to bring something with me. Um, so important. And that has stuck with me for so long. That's um, right. And the, the other important lesson that run out of the room doesn't always mean literally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh my God, what a mess that was. Okay. So regardless of whether or not someone's new in their field, um, someone might have an idea they're excited about. How can they get those ideas heard and get others to buy into their ideas? Well, one of the most important elements, of course, is understanding what are the, the levers or the triggers that would inspire other people, right? Because the, you hear the the bromide sometimes, or, you know, change is hard. People don't like change. And, you know, I mean, this is, this is true. Sometimes this is true up to a point. Some change is great. I mean, I, I remember the first time I ever used GPS and I was like, where has this been all my life? <laughs> you know, it was, it was so exciting to not be lost, you know, randomly driving around a city you've never been to. I was like, yes, give this to me immediately. So that was a change I was very happy with. There are some changes we all are just fine with, but I'll tell you what people don't like. They don't like a hassle. They don't like doing something for no reason because they can't see the value in it. They don't like it if it's going to be complicated or laborious or the payoff doesn't seem like it's going to be worth it. And so consequently, if you actually want people to get excited, get as excited as you are about your idea, about whatever it is you're trying to do, you need to reduce the hassle factor. So how do you do that? Well, number one, you make something easy to try, easy to test. You know, what is, what is the minimum viable way that you can pilot something so that people can actually see for themselves that, you know, oh, actually this does have some real benefits. How can we make, sort of reduce the barriers to entry? And also in terms of motivation, 
let people know what's in it for them. Really think it out clearly because we can't assume that they will bother to really take the time to analyze it strategically. You know, especially if you're the one pushing it, you know, they don't necessarily care at this point. But if you can actually create a cogent argument about why and how it will make their life better, then it may well incentivize them enough to get excited to be invested in wanting to listen or wanting to try something out. And what were to happen if, not saying this has ever happened in my life, but what would happen if you're like, yes, I want you to get on board with this idea. I fully support it. This is why. And the person says, yes, this is great. And it ends up not being a super great idea. I mean, like, is it, do you lose credibility with that person or is it, I, I don't, I'm just curious if there's something to be lost there. I think you're raising a really important point, Megan, which goes back to the question of expectation setting, right? It's absolutely true. If you say, you know, I mean, let's let's say you were like picking a stock, right? You're like, oh, invest in this. This is going to be the best thing ever. And then your friend loses all their money. Uh, they're not going to be very happy, right? And similarly, whatever idea you have at work, oh, this project, this initiative, this software, if you say that it's the greatest thing in the world and it turns out not to be, and you know, a month later, a year later, whatever, you're like, oh yeah, that was, that was terrible. Uh, it does undermine your credibility. That is a fact. So how do you thread that needle? Because you, know, you do need to get <laughs> certain things done and you know, some of your ideas, hopefully a lot of your ideas will be good ones. So I think the key is upstream, right? It, it's almost too late already if you've oversold something and then it's problematic. The key is upstream setting the right expectations. And so my favorite words, the magic words here are, let's try a test, let's try a pilot. I think this seems promising, let's try it out. And if we do that, you're not staking your life on it. You're not telling somebody else to you know, put all their money or all their time or energy into something. What you were saying is a very rational and logical thing, which is, oh, well, this, this seems promising. Let's investigate it further. And you know, any rational person, if it doesn't work, well, you know what? You've, you've laid the groundwork. You've prepared it. You didn't position it as the next best thing. You positioned it as let's experiment. And some experiments work and some don't, but it enables you to, to keep your credibility while still having the upside of, you know, if it turns out that it is great, you will get the credit for having introduced that innovation. Okay. So I've, I'm loving my idea. I, I've got a few people on board, but there's a few people who are still skeptical about the idea. Is there any possibility of me changing their mind or have I lost them? Should I just give up? So, there, there are probably always going to be some people that are skeptical, but there are ways to reduce that, right? And so where we often go wrong is that we try to have a, a kind of, you know, shotgun approach, you know, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to try this technique and this technique, and I'm going to tell people how great it is. And it's a strategy for the whole world, or it's a strategy for the whole company, and you know, that's wonderful, but when it comes to a small number of people that are crucial people in this endeavor, their opinion matters here. And if they're on the fence and not really breaking the way that you want, you need a specialized strategy. You can't have a general strategy for people who truly matter to the endeavor. You need to go deep into who they are. And so that actually means that you need to do a kind of power map analysis. Now, I wrote an article a while back for the Harvard Business Review uh, about this called, uh, I believe it was called a campaign strategy for your career. And we talked about power mapping, which is a, a common 
technique used in politics. If you are a politician and you want to get something like, let's say, an endorsement or something like that, you're not just assuming, oh, you know, this person whose endorsement I want, they'll hear my radio ad and they'll think I'm fantastic. No, you treat it with a lot more care than that because you know you, in, you need to influence the individual. And so what you would do is actually create a map, literally, of what matters to this person. Who do they listen to? Who do they respect? Is it their boss? Is it their spouse? Is it a certain uh, peer in a different department? You know, who, who is shaping their judgment? And are there ways that you can get to know that person better to kind of warm up your relationship with them? And are there ways that you could potentially convince the people around them of the merits of your idea so that they can help you be better ambassadors to change that person's mind? It, it really is about uh, having a, a hyper detailed strategy, a micro-targeting strategy when it comes to a few key individuals. All right. Awesome. I love that. And I'm just keep nodding over here as you're saying that. Like, it's so true when I think about the people I trust or the people who I would listen to um, versus those that I wouldn't. Um, but I love that idea. Okay. So for many people, not me, but for many people listening, the idea of putting themselves or their ideas out there might feel intimidating, especially if they have put an idea out there before that wasn't well received or didn't go very well. But how might those who feel a little terrified about the prospect of sharing their ideas approach this situation? Well, I have two ideas for that, Megan. The first one, as we talked about before, is the idea of suggesting a pilot, suggesting a test is often a really good way first of all, to win over other people because it doesn't seem so huge. It doesn't seem so final. It's like, oh, okay, well, we'll try it for a month. If it works, great. If it doesn't, we'll go back to the old way. No big deal, right? People are very hesitant to make irrevocable changes. But if you can suggest something that is a test, it's a, a short, limited duration, and if it works, great. Okay, do more of it. If it doesn't, fine. You know, We'll go back to, to the way that it was, and it won't really harm anything because it's just for the short period of time. Um, that is putting less on the table for them, but it's also making it less risky for you to suggest. You don't have to you know, be so worried that, oh, my reputation will be tarnished forever if it doesn't work. You are just putting, putting something smart, logical forward, you're testing, you're seeing, and your reputation is not attached to it either way. The other thing that I, I think is really crucial for us to understand is a concept that I talk about in my book, The Long Game, and I'm excited to be sharing some of these strategies with you in our upcoming webinar. And basically, I talk about a concept called career waves. And what I mean by this is that what I've seen so many times with professionals that I work with and advise, when people are sometimes feeling frustrated, you know, maybe their career isn't progressing, progressing exactly the way they want, or it's not going as fast as they want, Often the problem is they are working hard, but they are working hard at the same things that they have been doing, and they are not shifting into the next wave or the next phase of their career evolution. And I, I think that's a, a challenge because people don't always necessarily know that they need to do that, or they don't know how to do that. But broadly speaking, I lay out four key career waves. The first is the learning mode, which of course makes sense because when you're entering an industry, when you're entering a company, you do need to kind of get the lay of the land, right? Like, how does this place work? How does this industry work? You know, who runs things around here? What's the culture? That's the learning mode. Everybody goes through that. But a really important shift happens at a certain point 
And you can't just be taking up space anymore. You need to shift into what I call creating mode. And in creating mode, that's where you start putting your ideas out there. You need to start contributing so that people can understand that you have something real to offer. And that's a very important step for everybody. If you don't, otherwise you're just kind of taking up space, right? Just sort of a little bit passive. Um, it, it may feel a little risky, but it actually is riskier in the long run to not be sharing your ideas because people won't understand at that point what your value is. So shifting into creating mode is really crucial. And the other two, just for reference, is connecting mode, building your connections within your company and within your industry. And ISACA, of course, is a great way of doing that, being involved um, with ISACA. And then finally, we get to reaping mode, which is really exciting, which is, you know, you're clicking on all cylinders because you have all the pieces together and you're able to really enjoy the fruits of your success. Awesome. All right. So now you've built us up. We have all the confidence in the world and ourselves, our ideas. We've got people on board. We're ready to start building a following around that idea. So can you talk a little bit about that three-step process to make that happen? Yeah, absolutely. So in one of my previous books that I wrote, this one's called Stand Out, How to Find Your Breakthrough Idea and Build a Following Around It, I actually lay out a three-step framework about how you spread your ideas. How do they actually get traction and get out there. And so the, the first step is just one-to-one, -one, right? Um, you don't want to come up with an idea and immediately blast it to the entire world because you don't know yet if it's good. So one-to-one -one sharing is really these early days of kind of testing it out, right? Talking to people that you trust and saying, you know, hey, does this answer a need? Is this useful? Do you think that this could potentially go somewhere? Would this be helpful to others? But you have enough one-to-one -one conversations and you begin to get a sense oh yeah, this actually is helping people or this actually you know, is contributing something. And so at that point, great, you're feeling good about it. Now it's time for the idea to have a wider stage, which I call one to many. And this is where you're able to talk more broadly, more publicly about the idea so that other people can hear it and be exposed to it. This might be presenting at a conference or doing a workshop about your idea. Maybe it's writing an article for your uh, company newsletter or an ISACA newsletter. Um, maybe it's it's just you know offering to do a lunch and learn about it. But it's sharing your ideas with others so they can be exposed to it and it can gain more traction. So that's one to many. And then the exciting thing is if you do that enough, you're going to have to spend oftentimes a fair amount of time in one-to-many because it's a big world and it takes a while for things to get traction. But if it's legitimately useful, what happens in the third phase is really magical. And that's what I call the many-to-many -many phase because any idea, no matter how fantastic, can only go so far if you're the only one sharing it, right? You need other messengers. And so many-to-many -many is when other people, the people who have heard your idea, like it enough to start sharing it themselves. And that's how it can grow exponentially and really make a big impact. So that's the that's the real importance of the community there because you're starting small, going medium, and then really big, right? You're able to kind of grow your idea with your community um, and get all of that nice and, and big and fleshed out, which is Absolutely. amazing. Yeah, I have about a zillion ideas that I've done nothing with. So I probably need to read that other book as well. I'll send you my address. Okay, so um, you you talk about how you wrote about that in that book. Um, you've also written about the recognized expert formula, um, which is how to become known for your expertise inside your company or your industry. Can you tell us a little bit more about this or how someone would go about doing it? Yeah, definitely. So in many cases, you know, for, for people who are serious professionals, 
becoming recognized for your expertise really is an, an important and a valuable goal, right? It's it's about having the respect of your peers that when you walk into a room, people, you know, maybe your reputation precedes you. People have heard of you. Say, oh, you know, well, she really knows what she's doing. You know, it's, it's one of the best compliments we can have as professionals. And so what I have discovered over the last decade plus of really trying to understand and break down what does it mean to become a recognized expert? What does that look like and how do you get there? What I've discovered is that fundamentally there are three components to it. It's about content creation. So essentially finding ways to share your ideas so that other people know you have good ideas. And, and that can be some of the things we've talked about, right? It's writing an article, it's giving a workshop presentation, giving a speech, you know, any of those things can help spread those ideas, that's valuable. Number two is social proof. This is a term from psychology. Basically means what is your credibility, your perceived credibility to deliver this idea? Um, how We were talking about this earlier, right? Maybe your credibility is because you've worked somewhere for 25 years. That's great, but again, not the only way. You can have credibility from studying something in depth, uh, either formally or informally, you can have credibility, uh, for instance, because you've gotten very involved and maybe you're a, you know, a chapter leader or an officer in a professional association, you know, like ISACA. Uh, you can have credibility from being involved in alumni groups, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Um, but you know, maybe you start writing for a high profile publication in your field, but social proof matters. And then finally, it is your network because you need people, we were talking about this many to many, you need people to help amplify that message. So being conscious about connecting with people and, and building that network. And I'll just mention for folks who are interested in this, if you wanna take a free self-assessment, it's actually a scored numerical test that I've created. It's the recognized expert self-assessment and folks can get it for free at doryclark.com slash toolkit. So before we close, uh, I just wanted to, I haven't finished the book yet. I've made it page 86 I'm on, but it's interesting when you read something or even when you watch something, how sometimes a line, right? Like one little line really resonates with you. And uh, this line resonated so much that I get like misty eyed thinking about it. So I'm gonna read this. It says, saying yes to everything means being average at everything. Saying no, conversely, is what gives us the rare opportunity to be great. It likely means you need to be bad at some things. One way or another, we have to choose for ourselves if we want to accomplish anything at all. And I just love, love, love that so much. Um, and I think there's so much to be said from that, that it's okay to say no, and that you can't be great at everything. You could be average at a lot of things, but is that what you want? Is that what's going to fulfill you? So um, thank you for writing that because it, was, it really resonated with me very, very much. I'm so glad. Thanks, Megan. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else that you would like to share with our, our guests and um, invite them, of course, to attend your upcoming webinar, but anything else you want to share with the group? Yeah, thank you, Megan. I'm incredibly excited about the upcoming webinar. I hope everyone will be able to join. But I'll also say that ultimately, we are more and more uh, living in a world where persuasion is the name of the game, right? You You can't order people to do things or force people to do things. When you're working in a professional organization, people have a lot of autonomy. And what that means, if you want to accomplish something, you need to persuade them to do it. You need to really be thoughtful about making the case for why your your project, your initiative, the thing that you are rowing toward is something that they should be rowing toward as well. We 
need other people to help facilitate our, our goals and our plans, but we have to do it in a way that is thoughtful and strategic about getting them on board and getting their buy-in in the process. And so I'm really excited to be talking with all of you about how we can do more of that and hopefully be able to create even better results for ourselves and our careers and our organizations. Awesome. Dory, thank you so much for your time today. Greatly appreciated. Everybody, you've been listening to an ISACA podcast. My name is Megan Moritz. Have a great day.